0: It's really good to get to hang out with you guys. It's a really crazy thing that we get to do here every single week, is just gather together as uh, people who God has loved, as who, uh, just who God's been merciful to, and, uh, and just get to sing His praises. And so, uh, I just, I, I actually, before I jump into the message, I want to just take a second uh, to just talk about what, what is it that me what is it that I'm doing up here, Uh, and what is it that Terrell's doing up here, and Joe's doing up here every single week, Uh, just because I think we can take it for granted a lot. I know I took it for granted for a long time, uh, and I just read something that completely blew my mind of what uh, preaching is, of what listening to a sermon should be. So um, this is not a break from the worship We don't start off by worshiping in song and then uh, take a break and listen to a a sermon for a little bit. This is very much a part of the worship, right? And so uh, really the point of what I'm doing is as long as I'm staying faithful to scripture, uh, as long as Terrell is staying faithful to scripture, Joe is staying faithful to scripture, we're actually speaking the words of God and God is interacting with us through preaching, right? And so the goal of that, the goal of that actually is to make worship well up in our hearts, right? The goal of what I'm doing up here is to speak God's words so that the, the affections of love and joy can actually well up in your heart in God, right? And so that's what I'm doing, uh, that's what I've been praying for you guys, that's what I've been praying for me and, uh, and actually, I, I would really love to pray one more time just to ask specifically for that. I uh, I hope you'll be asking God that as well, just that you'll be able to hear him speak and that at the end of this you will love him more and that you'll be able to rejoice in him more, yeah? Okay. Father in heaven, we come before you and I I confess to you that I am unworthy of being here. We are all unworthy of, of being here. But you have made us worthy in Christ. So Father, I just pray that by your spirit now that you would, you would be pleased to use me to speak your word. And you would be pleased to open the hearts of, of myself and everyone here to, to hear them, to be able to, just, to rejoice in you, to love you, to see your glory. Please Father, I, I just ask these things in the name of, of your son Jesus, amen. Okay. Okay, so uh, we're going through, yeah, as Joe said, a series where uh, you guys actually get to pick the topics, and, uh, and you wrote in, and so we're just going through and trying to address specific issues that you guys have told us about, specific questions, and so, yeah, tonight we're, we're just, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how do I deal with feelings of guilt, right? How do I, how do I stay forgiven? Maybe sometimes I feel forgiven, sometimes I don't, Like, and, and it's... Really, most of the time I don't, and, and how, how do I kind of stay in the state of actually feeling forgiven by God? How do I stay out of this like, perpetual state of just, I feel guilty all the time, right? And so uh, this is not an accident that I get to preach on this. This is something that I've struggled with a lot, right, that I still struggle with. God has done some incredible things with me in that, but it's still something that I struggle with. So it's been really, really, really great. Uh, for me to sit with, uh, with the text that I'm, I'm coming out of uh, this week and just to be able to, uh, to have the Lord speak to me in this way. So, um, Okay, so when Terrell preached last week, it was really beautiful. He, he talked about God's eternal purposes, right? God's eternal purposes, how, how uh, really just the goal of God in all of history is to make much of God, to glorify God's name. He actually catches us up into that, Right? And so, it's really beautiful. So, he talked kind of big picture of what is God's purpose throughout history, right? I actually, this week, it's, uh, it's cool because I actually get to zoom in a little bit and talk about the individual's part in that, right? How does God sweep us up into his eternal purpose, right? Okay. So, I, I just want to start off with a little bit of big picture, right, just to say, uh, just to say, God, really, actually, I want to start off by just looking at who God is and how that affects what his purpose for us is, right? Okay. So the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, is an explosively happy God, right? He's an explosively happy God. And what I mean by that, he, he reveals himself for all eternity as a father loving a son. There's not a time where that started, right? He reveals himself for all eternity as a father loving a son, okay? So this infinitely beautiful God has a perfect image of himself that is the son, right? And he's looked on this perfect image of himself for all eternity, And his heart has delighted in him, right? This image of himself is also incomparably beautiful. His son is incomparably beautiful. And he's passionately loved by the father. So there's actually, just God reveals himself actually in relationship, right? So that God has always existed in relationship as a father loving a son and a son delighting in and submitting to a father. Okay? And so that when God creates, it's not because God needs something. God doesn't need anything, right? He's satisfied in himself. He's happy in himself. So creation is actually God wanting to share his goodness, wanting to share his beauty with something other than himself, right? So he creates so that he can shine his beauty, shine his glory into this creation. And the things that are created can see him and enjoy his goodness and see his beauty and delight in him like God delights in himself. Right? So, humans are actually at the very middle of that creation and, and we're the ones who are actually supposed to live our lives In deep, happy fellowship with God. And using what he gives us actually to forward that purpose in the world, right? To shine his glory farther so other people, other things can know it and see his beauty, see his glory and rejoice in it as well. It doesn't take long in the Bible for us to get a picture of how that actually went horribly, horribly, horribly wrong, right? And so, before I get to dealing with the feelings of guilt, we have to have a concrete picture of what this guilt is, otherwise we won't be able to deal with it well, yeah? So, the first man and woman choose to delight in something other than God, right? Right? God says, you're to be in relationship with me. This is how you're supposed to walk. This is how you're supposed to operate in this garden. And the one don't that he gives them, right? Don't eat of the tree the knowledge of good and evil. They do it. They do it. Because, because they see that in eating it, they can actually become like God themselves, right? And so... They use creation for their own purposes instead of submitting to what God told them to do, instead of for God's purposes. They say, nah, I kinda like how this sounds better. Right, and this is actually the curse that we ourselves are welcomed into, right? That we ourselves are welcomed into. We're welcomed into the same rebellion. We. We operate in our lives under the same rebellion against God as the first man and woman, right? And so Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13 actually gives us a a picture of what we're really doing in sin, what, what it really means when we say we're sinners, right? That it's not just, well, I do a few bad things, but it's actually very, very deeply rooted in our hearts, right? And so Jeremiah 2 12 and 13 says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. We have forsaken God. He is not the highest love of our hearts. We do not delight in him. We do not seek him. And instead, the second evil is we have sought to build our full and eternal happiness on something outside of him. Right? That's using things blatantly in ways that he's told us not to, right? We know those, right? I mean, having sex outside of marriage, getting drunk on the weekends, right? But it's actually, it can be a lot more subtle than that, yeah? It can be worshiping our job, be finding our greatest delight in our work, right? It can be having a relationship which is a good, pure, beautiful relationship, but putting all your stock in that other person, right? In your spouse, in your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, right? Your ultimate happiness is in them. I delight in them; they make me happy. Meanwhile, there's no no delight uh, for God in your heart, right? And that's that is the condition of every human being apart from God, right? Before we come to know the Lord, right? And then even after that, we have to struggle against those things, but that comes later. So we're so caught up in this rebellion against God, we're so caught up in this rebellion that we actually often don't even see our lack of delight and love for the Lord as an issue. We're so blind that we don't even think it's a problem. We don't even see it as sin. So, because of our sin, because of our guilt before God, because we've departed from God's purpose for us, it demands an infinite punishment. An infinite punishment. This is an infinite offense against an infinite God and so it requires an infinitely awful punishment, right? And I mean, we know this, so in this life that means being cut off from God. We don't know him, we can't know him and God says, fine, go your own way. Go your own way. Seek your satisfaction in other things. Go your own way. And the end of that is eternal and everlasting torment. So Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You don't escape that list. I don't escape that list. We've all sinned against God. We've all made ourselves guilty before God. And we deserve conscious, unbearable, and everlasting torment. The fury of God. And because we're cut off from Him, there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing, there's no good work that can commend us to him, there's nothing, because we're guilty. So, if it's God we've sinned against, it's God who must act. Uh, If you could, go ahead and flip over to Romans 8. We're going to be in verses 31 through 34. Okay, so we have departed from God's eternal purposes for us, right? And so something has to be done to reverse that. Something has to be done to reverse that. God has to catch up our little lives from going against his purposes back into going with them right? Because it's God's purposes that are invincible. It's God's purposes that will be accomplished. I love uh, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times things not yet to come, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes, right? And again, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted above the earth, right? But how can we as sinners, how can we as people who've made ourselves guilty before God, how can we be caught back up into his eternal purposes? God has to deal with our guilt decisively. He has to take it away, right? He has to take it away. Because it's God that we sinned against, so it's God that has to say, you're forgiven, you're on the right, right? And so I want to take a look at how he does this. So let's jump into the text. So Paul says, who indeed is interceding for us. Yeah, okay. So I'm gonna open this up. So this is coming out of a section that's talking about uh, predestination. It's the predestination section of of Romans 8, right? And so, um, again, it's talking about God's eternal purposes are being worked out through all of history. He's redeeming a people for himself, right? And uh, he says he chooses He chooses a particular people for himself to be his, right? From eternity past and into eternity future. And so he's talking about those people when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So in some way, God is acting, God is acting somehow to take away this guilt to take away everything that stands in our way of moving alongside him in his eternal purposes, right? And he's actually at the same time giving us everything we need. So we see he gives us his son, That's what I want to jump into mostly in the next few verses, but he gives us his son and because he's given us what is most precious to him, he also gives us everything that we need, everything that we need to move alongside him in his eternal purposes, Right, to move with him and not against him. So let's see how he does this. So it says, who is to bring a char- any charge against God's elect? Right. It's a hard question because we have things bringing charges against us. Right? Satan is bringing charges against us. He's the great accuser, right? God's own law is bringing charges against us. We've transgressed, right? Our own consciences are bringing charges against us, right? All saying the same thing. You have sinned against God. You have sinned against God, but look at the next phrase. This is where it starts to get really, really, really beautiful, right? So, Who is to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, right? So God, God in some way, actually looks at us now, looks at us, the elect, those who believe in Jesus Christ, right? And says, not guilty. It's me that you've sinned against and I'm not gonna hold you accountable for that. I'm not going to bring punishment on your sin. I'm going to declare you in the right with me. I'm going to declare you righteous and just in my sight. And so, the question is then, how does he do this? God is a God who promises to punish sin. How does he take a sinful person like me like you, and declares to be just, and declares to be righteous, right? um, I think if we've grown up in church, we, we understand that it's through the work of Jesus, and, and we have to have faith in that, right? But I think, I, I, just a couple of misunderstandings that I wanna deal with really quickly, I think if we've grown up in church, unfortunately a lot of churches give us a little bit of a warped view of what faith is, right? And so for a lot of churches I know it's this prayer that we say probably alongside our parents or alongside our pastor or alongside our children's minister and uh, they sit down with us like, oh, you know, uh, do you want Jesus? And they're like, oh, I don't know what that means but sure, right? And so we're six so, you know. Um, and we repeat the words that they say. Right? And we ask Jesus into our heart. Right? And, and then, and then, we're kind of supposed to look back at that moment through the rest of our lives and say, yeah, yeah, I'm saved. Like, I did that once, right? And so, uh, what, that, what that makes us do then is we, for the rest of our lives, kind of grub around inside of ourselves, kind of wondering, well, was I really sincere when I said that? Oh, probably not. I'll ask Jesus in my heart again, right? Oh, was I really sincere? <sighs> I don't know. I, I need to ask him into my heart again. I maybe need to get baptized again, right? And... We just look inside of ourselves. And it's really hard to find anything worthy of God's love and God's forgiveness inside of me. Right? Or we make kind of faith the first of these works that we have to do, right? And so you believe and then you you kind of get to work at at trying to please God maybe somehow I can make him happy by what I do uh and and I know like I I need to affirm these facts about Jesus but you know I I I just really need to get to work I really need to do these things so that maybe God will be happy with me eventually right and both of those are so 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 self-centered and so easy for us to fall into right and so I I just want to tell you like faith is not either of those things Faith is not either of those things. What faith is, is actually a looking outside of yourself. A looking outside of yourself. It's trusting in something outside of yourself. Right? And a receiving of something that's, that happened outside of yourself. Right? And so that's the, the next verse here. So verse 34 of Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God. Who's indeed interceding for us. Okay. So we have to look outside of ourselves to Jesus. And I'm gonna go through four specific ways in which we do that. Okay. All right. So we look, we look, we look, we look to Christ as dying, right? We look to Christ as dying. So 2,000 years ago there was a man nailed to a Roman cross. Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross and was left to hang and suffocate and drown in his own blood, right? So, I mean, what did that, what did that mean though? What did that, what did that mean? Why did God feel it necessary to do that, right? So. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, right? So we've, we've already talked a little bit about that. So what we deserve for our sin, what we've earned for our sin is death. Death right now, death into all eternity, right? Eternal death. And so a death must be died for sin. A death must be died for sin, And what Isaiah 53 tells us, right, is that God actually took all of my sin, all of your sin, the sin of the whole world, the sin of every single person throughout all of history and laid it on the back of Jesus and then he crushed him and then he crushed him. Right. So on the cross, what you have going on is, is God actually puts all of our sin, all of the guilt for our sin on Jesus. He's nailed to a cross, and he actually experiences all the physical, emotional, and spiritual agony that we deserve for our sin. He experienced the physical and the spiritual wrath of God, right? Right? And so that's why we see, I mean, it's the, the physical agony of the cross is, is pretty obvious, right? You have nails through your hands and feet. You're hanging for several hours to die, right? But the spiritual agony, I would argue, would be even greater for Jesus. So that's why we see him in Matthew 27:46 while he's hanging on the cross, cry out to God. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face away from Jesus because because he is of purer eyes. He is of purer eyes to look upon sin. Our sin. Right. So what that means, and where this gets really, really good, is that all of the wrath that God has for my sin was already poured out. It was already poured out on Jesus on the cross. There is no wrath left for me. There is no wrath left for me. There is no wrath left for you. Right, we said the wages of sin is death. Death. There must be a death died for your sin and it has already been died. There is no death, no death left for you to die. None. Right. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon as a preacher in England in the 1800s. He said, the whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip might give it such a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, talking about Jesus, he well-nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me, he said. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands, and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. There's no hell left for me to pay. There's no wrath left to be poured out on me. There's no death left for me to die because Jesus has taken care of that all. So, because of this, uh, we're now able to look at Christ as raised. Right? Christ as raised from the dead. So, he was crucified on a Friday some women went to his tomb that next sunday to embalm his body right so and he wasn't there he wasn't there jesus was and is alive he's actually alive Right. And so that means, that means that God has accepted the payment that he made, right? So death could only hold Jesus in the grave if the payment was incomplete. If there were more for us to pay, Jesus would still be in the ground. Jesus' body would be decayed somewhere in the Middle East, Right? So, Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the triumphant proclamation that our debt has been paid in full. It's done. It's done. And so... Jesus says something really crazy. He's talking about his resurrection in John 14 to his disciples. This is actually before he dies, right? And he tells his disciples, because I live, you also will live, right? And so what does that mean? So that means if Jesus paid our debt in full, if all of our sin was laid upon his back and he left it in the grave when he rose, that means there's also nothing, nothing, nothing To hold me in death. There's nothing to hold me in death. The only thing that has the power to hold me in death is my sin. And Jesus already paid for that and showed us by his rising that God is satisfied with the payment. And there's nothing any longer to hold me in death. So, so, Jesus rising also means that he's opened up a way for me to follow him into life. So Jesus emerged from the condemning power of sin so that in him we might live. But what does this life look like? so we share in the life of Christ so what does jesus life right now look like cuz i want to know i want to know about this life that i share with him so i can participate in it yeah so that's when we look to christ in heaven that's what it means when uh, he's seated at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us, right? So we look to Christ in heaven. Okay? So Jesus is right now, think about this right now, right now, in the presence of God. So right now, he's in the presence of God the Father as incomparably beautiful. God, looks on him with such delight in his heart because he's his perfect image. He's incomparably beautiful. He's absolutely righteous. Jesus never did anything to filthy himself before God. Not one thing. He never sinned. He never has sinned never Wilson, so he's absolutely righteous he's perfectly submissive right so for all eternity right and during his time on the earth he submitted to God perfectly at one point in John he says I only do the things that are pleasing to him I only do the things that are pleasing to him right he's perfectly submissive and he's also passionately loved in all these things. God looks on him with just nothing but love and affection and desiring his good, right? Hebrews, uh, a lot of the book of Hebrews is about this very same thing, right? But specifically, Hebrews 9.24 says, That Jesus is now in the presence of God to appear before him on our behalf. On our behalf, right? So that that Jesus isn't simply just incomparably uh, incomparably beautiful. He's not simply absolutely righteous, perfectly submissive, and passionately loved for his sake. He actually is that for our sake. So that now in him, as he actually right now, right now stands in the presence of God, we actually also stand in him as incomparably beautiful. As absolutely righteous, though we have done, we've screwed it up, right? But in Christ, we are before God as though we have never done anything wrong. He's perfectly submissive, right? So that in him, we stand before God as though we've done everything that God's ever asked us to do. And he's passionately loved, and we in him. So that God doesn't look at us kind of saying like, how are they doing today? They've really messed it up today. I don't really love him. They're, they're owning it today. I love that guy, Right? In Christ, we stand before God as passionately loved as we ever will be. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Christ is in his presence, right? So that God looks at us, not with a little bit of hatred and then like maybe a little bit more love, but nothing, nothing but love in his heart for us. Desiring nothing but our good. Right? That's who Christ is in his presence right now. I want to I wanna give you a picture of this. This is something that really, really deeply affected me when I read it for, um, I don't know, probably uh, probably the, the second or third time, right? I just, it never hit me like, like it did. This is uh, Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. You don't have to turn there. I can just read it to you. This is a vision that Zechariah, the, the prophet, has. Okay. So, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the, Lord, and the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your sin away. This is us in Christ. Christ. This is you and I in, in Jesus. Right? That God looks at us. We've, we've messed it up. We've fallen short. We've chosen other things. And God looks at us and says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Right? This is the one that I've chosen. This is my child. Take off his filthy garments. Put clean garments on him and he looks at us and he says see I've taken your sin away you're mine forever so God doesn't doing this God isn't doing this begrudgingly right God doesn't do anything begrudgingly He only does the things that are pleasing to him. He only does the things that make his heart happy so that when God justifies us, he doesn't do it because he made a promise one time that he's kind of regretting, but now he has to keep in Jesus, right? When we come to believe, God says, I have taken your sin away. You are clean before me as though you never sinned. And I love you. I have loved you before the world began. I will love you long after the world passes away. I love you in my son, Jesus. So, in being forgiven by God, we are restored to our original purpose. We can be restored to what God originally meant our lives to be. Because as we're delighted in by God, we begin to delight in Him. As, as we're loved by God, as our hearts are set in the warmth of of God's love, our hearts begin to be warmed to love Him and worship Him in return. Then and only then, you can't do this yourself. You can't. You can't earn God's love for you. God has done everything. So, uh, last thing, if this wasn't enough, Jesus is actually in heaven right now, and it's not like he's just kind of sitting around waiting for uh, the end to come, right? He's not sitting around just waiting, oh man, like, I wish this was here already, right? Jesus is actively interceding for his people. He's actively interceding for his people before God, okay? So, uh, we get a picture of this in Luke Right, so the night before Jesus was crucified, he comes to Peter and says to Peter, Satan has demanded you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Right, and so this, this gives us, I think, just a little picture into what Jesus is doing for his people in heaven, right, He's actually going before the Father and asking the Father, Father, don't let their faith fail. Let them find repentance. Don't let their faith fail. And God's granting that to us, right? So that every time we're able to turn from our sin, every time that we're able to to turn back to God, that's because Jesus has prayed for you, right? And his prayers are effective for us. When he prays for it, it happens, right? And when we do repent, he pleads our case before God with his own scars, right? He pleads our case before God with his own scars so that we still sin, yeah? Like even us who've been Christians for a long time, that's not gonna change. We'll grow. We'll be able to fight sin like we weren't able to 10 years ago, certainly, but we're gonna sin until we die or Jesus comes back, right? But when we repent, when we turn from that sin, when we turn back to God, Jesus goes before the Father and says, yeah, they, they sinned. They sinned. But remember, remember what I did for them. Your wrath was already poured out on them through me. Remember what I did for them. They're mine. They've come under my blood. They don't have to pay their penalty for sin. They belong to me. And So, we look to Christ as dying. We look to Christ as rising. We look to Christ and what He's doing and what He is in heaven right now. So, I wanna go through some, some practical things really quickly with you. When these feelings of guilt wash over us, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Really, just really practically, what do we do about it? Because we know that this, it's coming from a real place. We really make ourselves guilty before God. That actually happens, right? And so how do we deal with this guilt? So 1 John one, uh, 1, 1 1.5 through 2, two deals with this really beautifully. Um, talks about how if you say you have no sin, you're actually a liar and you make God a liar, right? Basically saying like, yeah, you sin. And there's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise in 1 John 1, 1.9, right? It says, if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So, take your real guilt. Take your real sin before God and confess it to him, right? Take it before your brothers and sisters in Christ and confess it to them. So as we take our sin before God and confess it and acknowledge it, you're like, yeah, if this, is, this is sin. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your punishment. I deserve death. I deserve to be cut off from you. But you promised. God, you promised. You promised that as I take these things before you and confess them to you, you promise to cleanse me of my sin cleanse me of all my unrighteousness says he's faithful and just to do that and take it before your brothers take it before your sisters confess it to them so they can pray for you you can receive healing so they can point you back to Christ they can point you back to the reality of life you don't have to pay for these sins God already has Look outside of yourself to Christ. There's nothing in you, there's nothing in you that's worthy of God's love, but Jesus has made you worthy. I just wanna deal with a few really special cases uh, here at the end. Just some things that really do prevent us from, really do prevent us from feeling forgiven, right? I want to be careful with this one because I know it's touchy, but I really felt like the Lord uh, was calling me to say it, right? This first one is to the people who call themselves Christians or are not. You, You have no desire to submit to the Lord. You have no desire to see his beauty. You have no desire to be with him and to walk in fellowship with him, None. You have no love for him in your heart, none. You come to church and you sing worship songs because you think, I don't want to go to hell, but I do want to live the way that I want to. So if I come here and I kind of throw some you know, pennies at God's feet, uh, he'll, you know, he'll have to forgive me. It's not Christianity. Christianity. It's not Christianity. So if that's you, I want you to encounter Jesus in, um, in Mark ten seventeen through 31. There's a young man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. You, yeah, you, you do these things. You follow the, the commandments. You follow God's commandments, right? And the man looks at him and says, I've I've done these things from my youth. And Jesus, it says, Mark, Mark actually says that Jesus looks on him and he loved him. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. And it says he heard Jesus' words and he was very sad because his possessions were very great and he walked away. And Jesus says about him, that man is not saved. He loves his possessions more than he loves me. So I want you to encounter Jesus. Jesus is so, so faithful to be able to show you in your heart what is it that, is that you're loving more than, more than you're loving him. He's faithful to show this to you. And then he's also, as he's faithful to show it to you, faithful to walk with you and being able to put that to death. And being able to really believe in him and being able to really see the beauty of God for what it is. And to be able to say, I I love God more than anything else. Imperfectly, yeah. But I know that Jesus is my savior. Okay. So please, please go home and encounter Jesus in Mark ten, seventeen through thirty-one, if that's you. So the second group of people that I want to talk to, talk to uh, is the people who have made peace with some sin in their life. Right? You're really a believer. You've really come to know the Lord. You, you love him. You've seen his beauty. Right? But now you're kind of in this state of just unsurety. I don't, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if he really cares for me the way that he says he does. And, and Honestly, that's because you've made peace with some sin in your life. You just allow it in. You don't wage war against it. The Bible has really scary warnings about that as well. Um, but at the very least, that's something that steals away our confidence before God. Right, and so the writer of the book of Hebrews says that if we continue in sin after coming to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for our sins but only the fearful expectation of judgment, Right? So he, he pleads with them, don't throw away your confidence. Don't make peace with sin. Don't, don't make it so that when you go before God, you're not really sure if he, if he loves you, if the sacrifice of Jesus is for you. That's what making peace with sin in your life does, right? And so I, I just want to tell you this verse. This is Romans 8, 12, and 13. It says... Uh, Therefore, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live. Right? Declare war on all of your sin, believer. As a Christian, this is God's call on your life. It's a beautiful call. It is. Your sin just wants to destroy you. That's all. This is a call to fellowship with God in putting to death your enemies. That's more than I have time for tonight, uh, really what putting to, you know, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit looks like. Talk to the people who are discipling you. Talk to Terrell, talk to me, talk to Joe, talk to someone, right? Into what that looks like. If you, I was never taught that growing up. I had to learn what that meant. Come talk to someone who knows what that means, yeah? Okay. Uh, the third group I want to talk to is the lackadaisical, right? People who aren't really living in any open sin, right? But who kind of take forgiveness and, and just kind of mosey through life, right? I, I just want to tell you, I want, I want you to encounter Jesus in Hebrews ten nineteen through 25, right? It just talks about how our forgiveness is meant for us to be able to be welcomed into the presence of God, for us to be able to rejoice in him, for us to be able to delight in him, for us to be able to love him, and for us to be able to live our lives in according to that purpose, a glorious, beautiful purpose. Yeah. Encounter Jesus in Hebrews ten nineteen through 25. And the last group I want to talk to are people in here, and I'm almost sure that there are at least a few, those who have walked in here thinking your sin is too great to ever be forgiven. First of all, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven a man except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I also want to tell you, if you're worried that you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you probably haven't. That's not something that people who have committed that sin worry about. Every sin and blasphemy committed by men can be forgiven in Jesus. Everyone. Right. But what, where I really want you to encounter Jesus is John 6, 35 through 40. Okay? John 6, 35 through 40. All right. It's beautiful passage. This sustained me through so much of my doubting, so much of the, the depression that I've walked through. Um, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? And a couple of verses later, he says, "And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, encounter Jesus in those verses and just come to him and pour your heart out to him. He's actually there. He's actually listening to you. When you confess your sin to God, he actually forgives you. He promises to. And let Jesus satisfy you then. Let Jesus satisfy you. Let him be your bread. Let him be your drink. Let him be the delight of your heart as you know how much you're delighted in because of him.